0: Welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, alongside me through the wires and the tubes. Brandon, recently vacation, Morton. Brandon, oh, I think I just dropped your last name for the first time on our <laughs> podcast.
1: That's okay. But I,
0: I, <laughs> I have been listening to other Talk North podcasts. Um, it, it, well, I, I do listen to The Flush regularly, and I know they say your name every time.
1: Yep, yeah, it's, it's no problem. But yes, I was uh, <laughs> recently—if you could call it a vacation—vacationing. It was nice. Yeah,
0: man, your first vacation in five years. It's insane.
1: Yeah, it ended up only being two full days off. I had to work the day I left, and then work right away when I got back. But, <laughs> but dang, <laughs> dang, dang. it was—it was, it was uh, really nice just to have two full days where I couldn't even—I didn't even have cell phone reception, so I couldn't even check oh. anything if I wanted to. Nice. And it was just two full days of just dealing with things as they were, as they happened outside, which is great.
0: And where did you go?
1: Uh, Beaver Creek Valley State Park in southern Minnesota. Um, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. I almost didn't want to give away the name because it's kind of like a hidden <laughs> gem of a state park. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had like a whole section to ourselves, basically, um, it, just right along a creek. It's absolutely beautiful, but very cold and windy and rainy at this time of year. <laughs>
0: Oh um, really? Oh so,
1: yeah, it was. It was you know, hovered around got you know low 40s, high 30s at night. It rained uh-huh. a better part of the whole thing, but that's part of the fun. You just deal with it and figure out a way to get in totally. and outside of the tent and just just totally have a good time. True. Yeah. Yep. Well,
0: and that's awesome. I'm super glad to hear it because you deserve it, um, and I hope it happens you know, sooner than five years from now.
1: (laughs) Me too. I would really like (laughs) it. And and maybe next time it would be three full days off in a row.
0: Who knows? Yeah. We'll we'll push for that. (laughs) We'll push for that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then you and I spent a little bit of time together uh, last weekend, which was super fun. And we don't want to give away too much because it'll be the subject of our fifth Monday episode. Um, But you came up to the cabin and... Shot a couple guns, accompanied a buddy and me on a on a grouse hunt.
1: Yeah, it was it was awesome. I had a great time. It was first off, your cabin and the, the land you have is just absolutely beautiful. <laughs> You're very lucky yeah, to have very it.
0: Fortunate. It's, it's yep, very fortunate. Yeah, very
1: nice up there. And I had I I had a great time. I'm, shooting guns was was a lot more fun than I expected. Yeah,
0: and I think you said less less intimidating shooting a shotgun than I mean less of a kick than you thought it would be.
1: Yeah, I've seen plenty of those internet videos of people hitting themselves in the face, <laughs>
0: yes, totally, with
1: giant bruises on their shoulder. But it was it was not like that. You got you were you and your uh, buddy were really great and helping me out and giving me a couple little pointers and just let me go yeah, at it. And it was fun.
0: I'm so glad you came up, and uh, we'll talk more about it. Uh, and then off the air, I'll tell you about a little offer that was made while you were on vacation for both you and me uh, that we might, um, you know, be able to even, you know, work work you into the hunting lifestyle a little bit more over the next couple months. So, yeah, there's some great stuff. People, I hope, will tune in in November for the next fifth Monday episode, which is when you and I have no guests but just uh, banter. We banter. And people, like, people seem to like our banter, and that's actually part of your Instagram handle as well. So it seems very appropriate that you and I banter.
1: It works that way. I did it for the alliteration, but you know, we'll, we'll, it, it, we'll say it's more than that.
0: <laughs> I love alliteration. Um, hey, and you and I also got to see each other in person in my backyard for this interview we did with Michael Chan, which was fun not only to see you, which is always fun, but to actually interview somebody live and be able to look them in the eye. And, uh, I, I just think, uh, it makes for a better conversation. I, I think people will probably notice it, but I had actually never met Michael before. He is a, he's a professor at Luther seminary. And my dear spouse, Courtney, is not only a yoga instructor and Enneagram coach, but also a professional photographer. And she was hired by that seminary to visit different professors in their homes and take photos of them while um, they were teaching online. And she came home from visiting Michael Chan's home and said, did you know there's a Lutheran professor (laughs) In the Twin Cities, who's like super into hunting, I'm named Michael Chan, and I had no idea, but um, Courtney put us in touch, and then you know we we had some back and forth online, and and I invited him to be on the podcast. I listened to his podcast a little bit, but uh, what a great guy! What a, a great conversation, and and really such a thoughtful hunter. I mean that that w- I just love it when I. I think there are a lot more people like that than I thought, but he is a very thoughtful hunter and has really, um, you know, reflected on the, the, the enterprise and endeavor of hunting.
1: Yeah. He, his, his, his perspective was really, it was genuine and it was, it's, I don't want to say refreshing because like you just said, we're finding more and more people that, that kind of share the outlook on hunting and, and preserving. And, uh, Not only that, but he's just—he's lived a really interesting, very passionate life, if you will. Yeah. Even, even, even going in the military in his mid-thirties, which is something you don't hear of often. But he did it for his own personal righteous reasons, and there—and it's great. It's really refreshing to hear.
0: Yeah, he's a super intriguing guy, and and like you say, very entrepreneurial. He started a couple businesses. He started a thing called the God and Guns Project. Uh, like I say, he's a full-time um. Uh, Old Testament professor at Luther Seminary. Uh, He's a big time hunter, especially big game out West. Um, Yeah, so just what a great conversation. He'll definitely be a repeat guest. You can find him at the, I think the best place to find him is at the Gospel Beautiful podcast, which we'll put in the show notes. And you can also just Google him, and you'll come up with his page on Luther Seminary's website, and you can see all the you know books he's written, articles, awards he's won, and and what he teaches about. Plus, all these you know um, side hustles he's got going too. So, yeah, I'm I'm really I feel very fortunate that he came on, and I think you all and I know I was really um, I really benefited from my conversation with him. And in fact, we've been corresponding since then about getting me out west to maybe shoot an antelope since i was unsuccessful at shooting an elk out west maybe i can shoot an antelope it seems a little bit easier so what do you think brandon you want to come out with me and try to shoot an antelope i'm in i'm in even even if it's just hiking behind you guys carrying your (laughs) stuff. i'm in (laughs) i love it okay well here is my conversation with a hunter entrepreneur podcaster and old testament professor michael chan hope you enjoy Michael, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Hey, I cannot wait. I've been looking
2: forward to this for weeks.
0: Well, dude, I mean,
2: <laughs> I, it took
0: me a while to get you on because there are so many um, Asian American Lutheran <laughs> professors who hunt that you know, were pretty far down the queue.
2: <laughs> Probably like number seventy-five. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, you're one of a kind, bro. <laughs> thanks. No this, I mean this podcast is kind of one of a kind, too.
0: This podcast is one of a kind, and yeah, I mean, if you're ever going to be famous, it's going to be on the Reverend Hunter podcast, because this is, this is kind of a platform made for you, like a niche is where it's at.: but yeah, it's not where niche. the numbers always are. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what they say though now? You don't need to find a mil- you don't need to find a thousand followers who will pay you no yeah. what, what is it? you know that deal?
2: No, that's right. Actually, I I listen to a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary Vee. Yeah, uh, he's got a, just an awesome. I mean, just an awesome personality, amazing kind of marketing insights, and he's always pushing this niche stuff. So I try yeah. to listen to him. Yeah, I mean that's
0: the whole Patreon thing, right? You yeah. find a you find a thousand people who are going to pay you a hundred bucks a year or whatever, and you can make it happen. Well, we're in my backyard. Thanks for coming down here, so people might hear dogs barking. We got Brandon over here, Mike-less. <laughs> so he's occasionally nodding or giving us thumbs up. The neighbor dog does occasionally bark. My dog does not bark. But it's about the outdoors. We don't allow dogs so cool. to bark. Yeah, but it is it is outdoors. <laughs> Behind you is a plant that is being crazily pollinated mm-hmm. all the time. So there's a ton of bees on there. So if you scream in pain, we'll know why. <laughs> now, you live in Minnesota, but you're an Arizona
2: transplant. That's right. We actually live up in Isanti. So uh, I guess, what, 35 miles, 40 miles north of, of the Twin Cities. And that was really purposeful. I, I prefer to live in a rural setting. Wow. I, I grew wow. up in uh, northern Arizona in a, okay. in a rural type setting. And I just, I don't like feeling constricted. Yeah. Even Minnesota, I always feel constricted in Minnesota. What? Uh, always. Even when I'm in. Because trees? In, <laughs> no. Part of it is just, I think that the way that the DNR kind of manages things. Like I was up at, oh. I was up at, uh, Carlos Avery, yeah, which is an incredible wild space. I was on the phone with the (laughs) supervisor of Carlos Avery this morning interviewing him for a story in the outdoor news. That's awesome. And I I absolutely love it up there. But as you drive through, you'll notice all these signs like, you can't walk in here because it's wildlife management area. Or you can you know, this is public space. And it's like, what are these signs (laughs) doing here? You know, I come from a place where... um, Arizona's a little more libertarian with, in well, that Well, within 10 to 15 minutes, you can be on public land in basically any direction you drive. Huh. And the private land uh, kind of rules are such that if, the, if a person doesn't mark, you know, this is a private land, stay out, you are free to access oh, yeah. it. North Dakota's like
0: that, too. Is that right? If it's not posted, you yeah. can go on there and hunt. <laughs> so I just drive around gravel roads looking for <laughs> ducks. You know, yeah. and if you see a farm field and there's a pothole in the middle of the field with ducks in it mm. and there's no sign... Yeah, you can just walk through the corn and
2: yeah jump those ducks. So I totally get why they want to preserve the, the land yeah. space up there. It's really beautiful, but <laughs> that's just the feeling that I have
0: I drew a. there's a controlled hunt in part of Carlos Avery mm-hmm. and for the second year in a row I I drew a spot. So uh this Saturday when you and I are recording is duck opener in Minnesota.
2: Oh I didn't and know and then
0: next the a week later, October third, I will be in there at Five in the morning setting up to hunt with my kid nice. and my neighbor. Okay.
2: And that's controlled so you had to actually draw a lottery.
0: Yeah and the they're theme. doing it for it's part of like the R3 stuff um, to rea- re- recruit retain yeah. and reactivate hunters um, and you get preference if you have a youth or a senior in your group and my kid is 16 nice. so we were you know I mean I don't know how many people he said there were seven or eight and we got drawn there are two spots and we got one of them um and it it's a lot you know it i will shoot some ducks and probably some geese there's an there's an open area that's not lottery in carlos avery and that's like that's like freaking world war (laughs) (laughs)
2: three like dangerous
0: to me i mean he said it's like (laughs) From half an hour before sunrise, it's 45 minutes of nonstop shooting. <laughs> and everybody's sky busting. Are you a bird
2: hunter or not? You know, I have done it in the past. We used to but hunt that's not ducks, with, but not really thing. anymore. No. Sky
0: busting is when guys just like hail marys at birds that are 70 feet in the air oh, you know God. what i'm saying like you're never going to shoot a goose that's flying at full speed straight over your head it's like the skies over london 70 yards II, right? you're right yeah just sort of like yeah, yeah you're like yeah. anti-aircraft yeah exactly your you're just like it's just <laughs> hail mary shots and it's just a waste of ammo but it, of course when you do that the birds aren't going to land they're right. going to be like uh yeah no <laughs> i'm going to keep flying at this point um Tell me, you grew up, did you grow up in a home that was a uh, hunting home? And did you grow up in a home that was a practicing Christian
2: home? Uh, yes to both. Okay. So my, as far as I could tell, I've asked my dad about this. Uh, uh, my, uh, I'm half Chinese. Okay. And so the hunting comes from mostly the, the Chinese immigrant side. And really? And my grandfather who immigrated to the United States uh, in the 30s he somehow picked up hunting i know he th- i knew he was raised in an agrarian kind of context and okay. i don't quite know if they hunted at the time or if this was something that he picked up in the U.S., but that's kind of where it seemed to have started, hunting and fishing. <clears throat> did they immigrate to Arizona? Or Initially, it was uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Not a lot <laughs> of hunting there either. <laughs> <so>. I mean, <laughs> maybe some bird hunting. It could be. I yeah, I really don't know. Uh-huh. Um, again, okay. that part of the history is a little bit vague to sure. me, but my dad hunted his entire life, and as a result, my brother and I hunted uh, since we were very young. We were mm-hmm. out. We were out with him. Doing a growing, you grew up in Arizona, mm-hmm. so what were you hunting there? Everything, including birds. Quail? My, my, my dad loves or. hunting quail, uh-huh. doves, uh, ducks. We had Labradors uh, that would nice. retrieve in, uh, in in ponds and marshy-type areas. What's the duck hunting like in northern Arizona? You know, I, I don't think it's great, but, you know, you pick up on the migratory uh, yeah. patterns, and so those ducks will land in cow trough or, you know, kind of cow dirt. Uh, Ponds, and that's typically where we would hunt them, because I suppose what they're on their way to Baja
0: California. That's what I would assume. Yeah, I'd assume that too. And then, what kind of large game were you hunting?
2: Deer, elk, antelope, turkeys. um, Rio Grande turkeys. Is that the they? What do they call? They have the rios, which I my understanding is that those are further south. But I could be wrong about that. We have the rios and. What is the other name? Some listeners, right? You know, (laughs) they will know. Are you
0: ever listening to a podcast? (laughs) Joe Rogan will do this sometimes, and he'll be like, "Oh, uh, you know, blah blah blah." I can't remember the name of this actor, and you're just like in your car <laughs> screaming. Like screaming the name. <laughs>
2: yeah, everybody knows. <laughs> everybody that. knows who that is. G- uh, Gould's turkey, oh, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. is, is another. Then there's the, the eastern turkeys, says, I think what we have. Of yeah, here. that's right. I eastern. was never much into turkey hunting. I just picked it up last year and tried to do it with archery. I was not very successful, but went out and tried to make it happen here, <laughs> now, here, in, here the, in, Minnesota. in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: Yeah, you know, I did hear recently actually some stuff. It might have been on the meat eater podcast. They were talking about, like, they're doing. Yeah, they're doing DNA. They've done some DNA research, and it's like. The Is turkey. there no difference? Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> people are like, I did the world slam of turkeys. Yeah, right. Like, well, you should DNA test those turkeys because they're probably now they're all like interbred and they've been moved around by DNR departments, you know, oh, yeah. from one state to another to try to repopulate. And I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll be driving up north the, this afternoon to our place to get ready for duck opener on Saturday, and you know, never there were never turkeys growing up and now oh, up in
2: northern minnesota yeah oh now they're everywhere
0: now they're everywhere you can find them sure all in in, uh, in isanti there must be turkeys. oh yeah yeah we see it so tell us um
2: what got you from arizona to minnesota well it was mainly a luther seminary where i currently work i i did a master's degree there mm-hmm. uh a, a master of arts in, in the old testament and then uh, went did my phd work at emory in atlanta um spent a little bit of time in finland and then returned to luther uh, as, as faculty Mm -hmm. so I I certainly you know miss the miss the western outdoors but we also have a lot of beauty up here in the north and and just learning how to hunt whitetail that is a whole different world yeah well I want to get into that with you because that's the other thing I'll be doing this
0: weekend is moving around tree stands (laughs) getting (laughs) getting ready ready for whitetail we've got so many we got so many deer on our property that and and we're in, an, like, an unlimited antlerless zone for $2.50 a tag, you know, because it's CWD <laughs> right. area where we are.
2: You're required to test them then? Uh, yeah,
0: now or- they've changed it because of COVID this year. It's not mm. a requirement. It's, like, strongly encouraged. And they're not staffing the drop-off site. So you, like, chop off your deer's head <laughs> right. and tag it and then leave the head. And then they come and pick it up, test the lymph glands. Right. And then email you the results so yeah it's a little different i mean i hope i hope there will be i hope a lot of people will get their deer tested but also they found one positive cwd deer then they shut down a a, you know famously kind of shut down a game farm that, that had a ton of infected deer inside it didn't hear in about Merrifield, that. that was north of Brainerd, and they've not yet found another positive in in that county. So that's good. That's good I think yeah. probably one deer cross-pollinated with the deer that were inside the fence, mm-hmm. touch noses or something. That right. deer
2: died, and hopefully didn't spread it to any other deer. That's the yeah. That's the no, line. that would be a bad deal. I mean, that CWD stuff seems to be quite nasty. I don't know much about it's it. It's really bad. Yeah. So
0: tell me about your, before we get into your Western hunting, what's tell me what it's like in Isanti. What's Isanti,
2: Minnesota like? Well, population, uh, roughly four to 5,000, if I remember correctly. So it's relatively rural. We're surround. We have a lot of kind of fields and, and whatnot around. And that's what we we appreciate, that rhythm. We being? Uh, my wife and uh, uh, kids and I. Okay. And I think part of it, too, is it really is... Um, reflective of the moment as well i work in kind of an urban environment in the sense mm-hmm. that i'm at the seminary in saint paul and many of my students come from urban environments but um y- y- there's a tendency right now to kind of live in an echo chamber yeah. and i wanted to i wanted us to be placed in such a way that we were sort of within both operating in both red and blue parts i of mean that the, where you the, live is super red super red yeah and I just how's drove, that for you you know, it's, it's just the reality. And that's how it is in, that's how it is in Arizona. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a Trump supporter, but um, we have a lot of neighbors who are. And I just feel like in, in the current environment, it's so easy just to be in your echo chambers where you yeah. don't have to come face-to-face with true kind of ideological difference. I want to be there face-to-face, and I want to know kind of what that feels like and then be able to for that to inform the classroom as well. Have you experienced you or your
0: kids experienced any racism in Isanti?
2: No, not even not, not even the smallest. Is that right?
0: No, we've had and we've had because it's <laughs> not. Any, I mean, there are Asian people in the Twin Cities. Yeah, for listeners probably know that there's a very large Hmong Hmong population. Yeah. For instance, um, even in here in Edina, where I live, there's a, a, there's a lot of Southeast Asian and Chinese, more more Chinese sure. people and. Um, in our school district, which is awesome. And, but not so much in Isanti.
2: Yeah. And my daughter's school, I haven't sort of seen every student in her class, but just from conversations, we talk with our young daughter about, you know, just about the realities of racism. She hears things on the radio. Why are we talking about policing? What, you know, what are, what are all these issues about? And so in a five-year-old kind of way, we try to make to do some education there, but she, you know, she notices that there are people who have different skin color in the classroom, and so I think there is some level of diversity reflected even in her school district. Mm-hmm. But our experience in Isanti has been very positive, and you know, I've had encounters with law enforcement speeding, you know, those kinds of things, <laughs> and all been very positive and respectful, and and uh, you know, a lot of them are are hunters as well, and so a lot yeah. of times I'm coming back and forth from hunting, and they'll make notice of oh camo or your bows in the back of <laughs> your truck right. that kind of thing are you then uh, so when, when you hunt uh,
0: within a driving distance of your home are you on public land or what's that? Uh,
2: both i just gained access to uh, some private property this year through a friend and i was immensely grateful for the opportunity because the pub- it's hard to hunt the public land i think yeah it was, it was a lot last of pressure year. on mm-hmm. it it's pressure and also you just can't set up permanently set up a stand either yeah you have to be more mobile and i I typically use like a a phantom saddle so a saddle hunt um which is really comfortable i'm excited to to work with it more this year and so that gives you some more flexibility but still you know just having to go on and off the public you don't know who's going to be there if you're going to have to abandon your area it's just difficult trail cameras are harder and bow season just started last weekend did you go out no, because I was hunting antelope in Wyoming. No, tell, <laughs> all right, well, tell us about that. Well, that, that was an awesome hunt. That, uh, that was in Unit 76, so near um, uh, oh, Casper, mm-hmm. Wyoming, okay. and then uh, Shoshone. And a uh, huge unit, a lot of public land. And the way Wyoming works is that uh, it was a lottery draw, and my brother and a family friend and I, we all drew, and we probably draw every three years or so no in, in Wyoming. It was a rifle tag. You can upgrade the tag to an archery tag so that you get access to earlier hunting dates. So oh. I ended up doing that so that I could hunt a week earlier and kind of get to know the area a bit and scout it out for my brother and, and our friend and uh, just ended up, you know, being able to harvest an antelope, which was hard. I, this is kind of my first year uh, hunting archery hardcore.
0: So, dude, that I mean, look, there, there's—I have so many questions for you about that, because what you did is—I mean, that's an adventurous deal <laughs> to go somewhere. To okay, if you're not super into archery hunting or you're just getting more into right. it, that's a hurdle. Yep, you're going. You're a non-resident lottery draw in a state. Y- you're unfamiliar with and a unit i was completely unfamiliar with and an animal you've never hunted before
2: with a bow i've hunted it with okay with a rifle so okay did you go out there alone i was there solo for about five days dang did you where'd you stay uh just camped on the public land. Come on, so in a tent? this is where. Do you know Onyx the? Yeah, the totally. So this is yeah. where Onyx is like supreme. It's incredible. Helpful. No, Onyx
0: is like I will sing the praises of Onyx all day long. Yeah. The other day, my kid just asked me. He's like, "How much do you think Onyx pays to be the named sponsor of Meat Eater Podcast?" <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> A, a lot, lot. yeah, a but lot. also there are a lot of us spending ninety nine bucks a year on Onyx. <laughs>
2: no, that's right. <laughs> you know, so I the am.
0: national I spend ninety nine too. So yeah, so you get, the get the all national. the states. Yeah, yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay, so Onyx. So so you go to public land, you get your mm-hmm. draw, you mm-hmm. say, it must be a pretty easy. There must be not a ton of people, hunters putting in for that if you draw every third year about You know,
2: it depends on the unit. There were, I think there are five to 600 tags given out for this unit because the population is so high. Okay. We did not, we hunted opening weekend um, and did not see that level, you know, those kinds of numbers. Uh-huh. We didn't really see that many hunters at all. More th- less. Who, than now, who's expect. we? Well, my brother, dad, and, and family friend and I. So they did come out? They eventually came out after, on opening day oh, of so the gun you, hunt. So you got out there archery
0: season. Right. They're, they joined you for rifle season. Exactly. You tell me what's the terrain, and mm-hmm. tell me about the, you know,
2: stalking and ultimately mm-hmm. getting that animal. Yeah. Uh, so the terrain is is flat to mountainous. Not we're not talking like ten thousand feet like Colorado mountainous. It's yeah. more like. So I think the highest elevation is about fifty-three thousand or fifty-three hundred feet. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, you have some flatter stuff as so well. The antelope love the flatter stuff. Oh, you know, And I think, okay. as far as I understand the biology, these, these are animals that have uh, like 10 power binocular vision. They can see really, really well. And wow. I think they feel safer when they can see more. Okay. And so that's why you tend, and they're, they're fast too. I think they top out at like 40 miles an hour. So I think they're the fastest land animal in North America. Wow. Somebody will be able to tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they are super fast. They see really well. And so... You're kind of trying to find these higher glassing points and looking out into large valleys where you can see them. They stick out like a sore thumb. Oh. Big okay. white butt. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, long, yeah. You can see them from a long way away. Okay. So the, the game plan was for me to just go in early, find these high glassing points, and, and, and just kind of locate the population pockets water sources and so as i did that i i hunted archery as well and man i was so bad <laughs> it was i i missed twice on the first day <laughs> uh, like took shots took shots at bucks on the first day at 50 and 60 yards okay which are, are i'm generally range com- I'm, range. Comfortable. No, okay. I'm comfortable no i'm comfortable i'll shoot out to 70 and 80 yards um i don't feel as comfortable there but 40 Have you got a range finder i do okay. yeah oh that absolutely necessary at least for if me if you're archery hunting yeah i i think it is especially in the western where it's not like you're sitting in a tree and you can kind of pre-range stuff. Right. You know, you're out in the wild and you don't know. And it, yeah. it, it, distances are deceptive, too. Yes. I always find myself misjudging ranges if I just do it by eye and then try to. Interesting. You know, just not that good yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so missed a couple times. I think I probably did 20 total stocks over a matter of a couple of days before I actually killed. Wow.
0: 20 stalks on different animals 20 different,
2: different animals. 20 different animals.
0: So there were a lot. You saw
2: a lot. Population's huge. I wow. mean, in, on any given day, I saw probably 50 bucks. Jeez. And as an as a first-time archery hunter of animals, I would have shot any of them. <laughs> I would have shot any of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you weren't looking for a trophy. You were looking to... a kill. Yeah. Any kill
2: would have been a trophy. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So tell us about the <laughs> successful one. Well, I was out checking water, and I, I uh, found a buck... Uh, off the road bedded so i saw him bedded okay. and um you know i glass or i arranged uh, uh, him from the vehicle stepped out of the vehicle got to within about uh what was it, 40, i think it was about 40 yards so
0: you're walking through what terrain like is totally just open prairie totally grass flat. Uh, kind uh, of
2: yeah i guess you could it's sage grass sage, sage grass, sure okay of kind of okay, okay. so you've got open. no cover really he knows i'm there Really, no, he absolutely knows I'm there. I mean, I don't want to make this sound like any any more glorious than it was. Like he saw me from the road. <laughs> I, I I stepped out of the truck, stepped around the truck to where I could, you know, sort of safely legally shoot at the shoot at the animal. It starts to walk off at 50 yards. It pauses, and I shoot at it, and 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 hit it at uh, hit it at 50 yards. I know it's it because you can sometimes hear the, you know, I could hear it, it wasn't. I heard it hit the body. Sure. He runs off into a ditch and. uh Stumbles, so that's how I my first kind of visual confirmation okay, I know he's hit. So I give him about 30 minutes and then I go is your buck fever? Is your heart pounding? Yes, yes, yes. That's why I missed the first two times. I was just freaking nervous, (laughs) yeah, totally, (laughs) totally nervous. Oh, interesting. Um, and so I I glassed him up again, uh, bedded down and gave him a few more minutes. And I could, I could kind of tell he wasn't hit enough that he was gonna kind of bleed out and die. So I stalked him from behind. Um, and uh, uh, upwind and then took a, te- a, t- a second shot to kill him at about 40 yards and he died okay. basically instantly there. Okay. Which is good. That's, for me, that's one of the hard parts about archery is that with a gun yeah. shot, often they're gonna die super quickly. Mm-hmm. I hate having to see them suffer. You know, yeah. that for me is, that's one of the reasons I held off from doing archery for a long time because I knew about those possibilities. And I like, if a thing's gonna die, if I'm gonna kill an animal for food, I want it to die as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, man. And,
2: <clears throat> so I've, I've
0: wrestled with that no, for a No, I I hear you. I feel you because I have not archery hunted um, for fear of, well, it's harder. I mean, it's just, a, it's just like next level hunting for one thing. Yeah. yeah. You got to get, you know, <clears throat> 30 or 40 yards from an animal instead of 100 yards or 150 yards from an animal for one thing. But the other is I'm just worried about the lost animal. I'm worried, and I mean I know somebody who lost an elk in Eastern Oregon this week. Like arrowed the elk. Yep. Tracked blood, found the blood trail. Tracked for five hours, lost the blood trail. Yep. And never found the animal.
2: This thing, this happens a lot. Yeah,
0: and that that I think that's for me that's a tough one. Not that I won't get over it in archery hunt at some point. Right. Right. I haven't to this point, okay, so what's the temp when you drop this animal how what's the temp
2: outside the temp It was so comfortable there, I think maybe upper seventies
0: did <clears> you start <throat> to evening. worry like
2: i got to get this meat cooled down fast i mean what's the no that is that is absolutely a concern and so after after it died i so i uh, uh quartered and field dressed it. Uh-huh. Um, I don't do sort of the, I do like a gutless, uh, quartering kind okay. of method. So yeah. you uh, basically remove the shoulders, back straps, uh, tenderloins, and, um, a- and then you would leave the rest of the carcass out there. So I did my own pictures, which was a little bit difficult. <laughs> like I had my tripod Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then tried to get, a- I'm still pretty slow on the field dressing. Uh-huh. by myself, yeah. Like, I think my brother can probably get an antelope done within 30 minutes. Really? Like the entire thing by himself. My brother's like that too, yeah. I'm just not that fast yet, so... But I Why the godless method? I just don't want to have to drag an animal all the way back to my truck. And it's cleaner. Yeah. There's less risk of, of, of getting, you know, urine or feces or whatever other kind of... On the no, meat. On, on Do you the feel the like meat. you lose some meat as a result of that method? You know, it is... I suppose there's a possibility of that happening because you're not quite spending as much time with it hanging up and, and getting every kind of tiny bit of meat. But you're there getting the
0: front shoulders, the, the neck meat, behind, the front shoulders, uh, yeah.
2: uh, the, the back straps, the tenderloins. Oh, wow, okay. So, so you're, you're able to get as much meat as you want. It's just you don't have to deal with the nasty guts. How do you get the tenderloins...
0: Because they're mm-hmm. up inside the rib cage. Oh, yeah. So how do you get inside there if you're not
2: gutting it to get to the tenderloins? It, very carefully. and oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so you remove the back legs. You take off the back straps, which uh, gives you access to that. They're kind of like underneath the rib cage, yeah. right? Um, so you, you have to sort of be careful not to puncture the guts yeah. because it, okay. they kind of – expand a little bit if they're sitting for too long or if the animal's kind of turned in such a way that the guts sort of push up against it. So you just have to be really careful not to puncture. Yeah, right. But once you can get your hand underneath there, the tenderloins can be You pulled. kind of peel it you out. You just peel it out. Yeah. You don't, you don't even have to cut so the real danger is just getting the accent and i've punctured before i have made this <laughs> mistake
0: <laughs>
2: how's the how much meat did you harvest from that animal well one of the legs was lost um oh. uh, the one one of the arrows ended up doing so much damage okay. to the to one of the legs that i did lose it so uh, i took I, I took it to a butcher there in, uh-huh. in casper and they did a really fabulous job i i'm guessing maybe 30 to thirty-five pounds okay. without having weighed it myself, yeah, you know yeah, the, the yeah. end result. It tasted good. We ate some last night. Is that right? <laughs> we ate some backstrap last night, and oh, it's. So, I think antelope, alongside bison, is some of the best.
0: You know what? My brother gave me uh, some antelope steak last year. Um, God, well, he had a name for it. I mean, they call it pronghorn in, in yeah. Oregon where he shoots it, but um, they have another, It's really a dark meat. Yes, it's very dark. It is like buffalo in that, it's a bison in that way. It's. Did it taste at all like
2: sage to you? Sometimes people complain. You know, about maybe that.
0: it did. I probably, if I would have been paying attention, I bet it would have. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating, man. Well, congratulations.
2: And then, yeah. your dad and brother and their friend showed up. And they both harvested bucks within the first two days. Theirs were quite significantly larger than mine. So they both. Uh, we we didn't like formally uh, score mine. It's just so small, yeah. like <laughs> embarrassing. Um, but the, both of theirs were uh, seventy six and a half inches and seventy six point seven five. So you know, significant significant bucks. I think the but they look so different. That's hard, the hard thing about antelope is scoring them in the field. Uh-huh. You can have two bucks that look totally different from one another, but they will score exactly the same, which was the case here. One of them had very long pr- uh, cutters, kind of the, you know, mm-hmm. the things that mm-hmm. jut forward, but was very short on top. It had huge bases, you know, very m- massive. The other one was very long on top and kind of swept and hooked back, had smaller cutters. Interesting. But they were basically within half an inch of one another. Huh. Big huh. bucks for that area.
0: Yeah. That must have been super fun. So, you
2: stayed out there for when they harvested theirs. Yeah. And that was neat. And did you see other hunters? Yeah, we did see some other hunters, um, mostly road hunting, to be honest, kind of driving around and looking. And and we found it did. We do a lot of deep glassing into country. And so, we found that we were able to find some really big animals, you know, just by getting off the road, getting to some high points, and spending a lot of time behind the glass. I think I need uh, to hire you as my guide, maybe, <laughs> and do that hunt because it sounds awesome. You should. Everybody should hunt antelope. I yeah, I really like just to. So much fun, and like so many opportunities to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, especially if you're hunting with a gun.
0: Yeah, that that's how I would do it the first time for sure. Yeah. I went on my first ever Western hunt last year, and I went to Southwest Colorado after elk, and. Like, never mm. even saw a bull for five... You know, I was out there for a week. And the number of hunters... Oh, yeah. Holy you did an over-the-counter crap. hunt. Yeah, so yeah. it's second rifle, yeah. over-the-counter. Oh, that's hard. <laughs> and yeah, it's virtually impossible. You know, 660 bucks for a tag. Yeah. We should and, talk. We, we, and never we even saw... It. And only saw a couple cows. Like, in every trailhead, mm. there's seven pickup trucks. Yeah you know it, and there's guys on atvs and there's guys on horses and these there's guys with guides and yeah i mean it was a great you know what it was a great learning experience for me um and i actually had some guys out there and we filmed it for a project wow so it had like it it was good it was good but it was not successful in the sense that i did <laughs> not
2: harvest an elk let me make a suggestion for, yeah. for folks like, like yourself who are kind of newer to Western hunting, but you like want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, elk, mule deer, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm not sponsored by these people, <laughs> but Hunt and Fool is a great consulting service. You pay them about 100 bucks a year, and you can call them, and they have a whole team of Western hunters. Huh. And you say, look, I'm this dude from Minnesota, and I've hunted once, and it was a terrible experience. I want to hunt elk next year um, I want it to be a good experience with all kinds of opportunity, and they will be able to tell you where to put in what the opportunities are. They have a great mapping service where you can kind of log in at the same time and they 'll say, "Hey, look, this is the unit that I think you 'd hunt in when you 're there, you should go glass at this point really? you know like a highly yeah. detailed insight wow. and I found them to be tremendously helpful they publish a couple times a year in opportunity hunts magazine they publish a a magazine every month beautiful um with like advice and okay it is like a great service for people who want to get into western hunting that's awesome hunt and fool hunt Hunt and fool fool. they're not
0: even on my radar that's they are now i'm gonna look into that my because yeah my brother's like hey you should come out with me and hunt this ranch in eastern oregon he's Mm -hmm. like if you shoot a If you shoot a cow, you only have to pay the rancher five grand, (laughs) (laughs) and if you shoot a bull, it's sixty five hundred or something. I'm like, um, yeah, that's a lot of Uh, money. (laughs) I'm like an uh, I'm like an underemployed theologian. I don't think I'm gonna. I think I'll be more, you know, public. Okay,
2: um, did you grow up Lutheran? I did, yeah. Grace Lutheran Church, Kingman, Arizona, was baptized there. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time at summer church camps, Lutheran mm-hmm. summer camps, mm-hmm. and that's when I first kind of felt the call to do teaching, of, okay. to teach the Bible, when I was about fourteen years old. Yeah.
0: And went to a Lutheran college, and then yeah. why, when, when and why did you decide that you were going to focus on the Old Testament?
2: Yeah, I, I have. The Old Testament fascinates me for its stories and its poetry. Mm. So I I do a lot of work in books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel, all of which are kind of symbol-rich. I first really became fascinated when I read the work of Terry Fretheim, mm-hmm. who ended up being one of my supervisors He's a very good friend yeah. um uh and and also Walter Brueggemann. Great scholar. I mean just amazing right them, yeah. and, and scholars of the church yes. which was important for yes. me yes. that which
0: which yeah. uh, explain that to listeners that means you're not just writing for the academy you actually care about people reading the Bible mm-hmm. in their daily lives. No that's and understanding
2: it. No that's right. It's it's all kind of it's a matter of, like, do you want to kind of climb the ladder of prestige within the academy where you're writing, I mean, and this is important work, and I've done a lot of it myself, kind of writing peer-reviewed yeah. articles on very, very narrow, important, but narrow topics, which may or may not have an impact on the life of clergy and the church and the sort of the person in the pew. I wanted to have that kind of, I want to have that kind of impact mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, on the person in the pew. So I tend to write in that direction.
0: Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I years ago I was at some consultation. It was with the Alban Institute or Wabash or something like oh, that. Yeah, yeah. and they had just done a study in The Chronicle of Higher Education, or an article where they had studied across all fields, the average this is the average number of people who read an article in an academic journal. The average... <laughs> Is it like three? Four.
2: Yeah, I think, four, I, well, I think four, I've seen this before. people.
0: You're like, so you're writing that to get tenure or whatever, to get right. prestige in the in, in the academic guild, and I'm glad to hear you're not...
2: Um, and to learn, you know, for yourself as a person. Yeah, I sure. there's that too.
0: So you, and you were on tenure track at Luther, but then you left to join the military. What...
2: What was that about? Yeah, so I, for a lot of my life, I have had this kind of pull between wanting to do service within and teaching within the church, and the, but then also feeling this deep kind of obligation and love for the country. And mm. just to be clear, like our our country is really jacked up right now, yeah, and it has been for a long time. what yeah. pa- yeah. part of one of the it's coming to a head. It's now. coming to a head, yeah. and part of what I think the Spirit is doing is exposing these kind of long-term generational sins that mm. have been there for 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 long, but but because of different factors they can be ignored yeah and I, yeah. i'm grateful that we can't ignore them anymore um <clears throat> nonetheless i think the dream america is dream is is an important thing worth mm. fighting for worth dying for worth laboring for and and for me because of my kind of background in near eastern languages uh, that uh, uh, there were opportunities within the navy to kind of use that use those skills so i, I so I, not as chaplain you weren't no, in the no, navy no. as a chaplain you were like going into uh, I, I was like training to do intelligence Intelligence, work. Okay. right okay. right okay. um w- unfortunately while i was while i was in i, I developed a vision disorder oh and uh that uh, put put me on a very long process that ultimately resulted in a discharge because of these medical issues okay okay so that sort of put us in a bit of a vocational <laughs> crisis and we how old were you when you joined the military uh 30 let's see 30, 35 30 dang that was in 2016 that's rare yeah. yeah i was almost timed out which is part of the reason oh, why why i jumped at that point point. and i was i was in israel during the last war which kind of brought a lot of this to the head for me sure. i thought am i is this the, am i in the right field could i be contributing differently that sort of initiated a lot of stuff. There. Okay, <clears throat> okay, okay. Well, good for you, man.
0: That's amazing. And that, But then, leaving the military, you went back into the academy.
2: First back into ministry. Oh, uh, the, okay. th- there wasn't immediately a position to open, and I didn't feel like there would have been integrity in just jumping right back in sure. because we had really spent a lot of time praying Trying to discern this this next step in, in in our lives, and so I thought I'm not just going to jump back in because I need a job. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Um. So we moved back to Northern Arizona. I did end up taking a parish part time because they uh, the the bishop and the pastor had approached me. the the in- other interim needed to get surgery done. So I said, look, this is a good place for me to discern. Hmm. You know, continue to serve the church, but discern what was going to come next. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. When you uh, came back to Luther a few years ago you also launched a thing called the God and Guns Project or around the same time no
2: that was actually before or when him. you were
0: in Arizona you started that <clears throat> even before that oh really
2: yeah so that was before I left Luther the first time and so I did uh, that's also when I did that interview with oh with not Terry Gross but with um, Carrie Miller, yeah, yeah. Sorry for missing yeah, that. I, that was a fun conversation, and, and yeah. she was a great host uh, yeah. throughout that. Um, and so that really did emerge kind of out of my uh, out of my hunting experiences, and I just noticed that people relate to the gun issue in so many different ways. Yeah. Many of them do from a perspective of faith, and that's true for people who are kind of want more stringent gun laws who are kind of advocating for, uh, maybe, you know, universal background checks or something. They often do so from a place of faith. Yeah. Likewise, people who are gun owners and maybe want to kind of advocate for like two a rights, they also often do so from a perspective of faith. So I was interested in the different ways that those intersected with one another, both quote unquote pro gun and yeah. quote unquote yeah. anti gun as terrible as those terms are, you know, those aren't the right terms, I think to describe what people are.
0: Doing. Yeah. But it, in your mm-hmm. context, the the people you – you're an outlier in this mm-hmm. world. I mean, maybe not at your ELCA church in northern Arizona, maybe you're not an outlier. Right. Or in Isanti, right. you might not right. be an outlier. But on a faculty of a Lutheran seminary, as a gun owner and advocate for <clears> gun <throat> rights, you're an outlier. I mean, that <laughs> –
2: I think to right. so, to some degree at AAR that's true. at the American Academy <laughs> of Religion you definitely are. Yeah, and I would or say for SBL too, probably. Yeah, I, it's certainly a project that kind of sticks out. Yeah, You know, as somebody who like publicly hunts and, and publicly, uh, you know, sort of does these things. And part of the reason I'm public about them is because I want to spark the conversation. And it almost always does. If I if I post a picture of, of myself on a hunting trip or of a, of a recently harvested animal, it will generally par- spark conversation. And I want that to happen because for me, it's deeply connected to my faith and how I think about this world. How? Tell me more about that. How yeah. is it? So I have this little pre-speech that, or miniature elevator speech that I typically give to people about why hunting is important for me, and it revolves around three words. Um, uh, One is honesty, one is the word local, and one is the word conservation. So uh, I think two adjectives and a noun. (laughs) I couldn't find a way to get (laughs) them to be uniform. The honesty part is we generally eat probably 75% vegetarian. We don't eat, my family family and I, yeah, uh, eat about 75% vegetarian. If we eat meat, it's generally going to be something that I've harvested myself. And that's important for us as parents because we want our kids to know, like, if you are going to consume a hamburger, understand that an animal gave its life so that you could actually, or its life was taken, is more the case, um, uh, in order for it to sustain you. We just want you to be honest about that. So my, my daughter's first hunt was actually a bison hunt in northern Arizona in the Kaibab National Forest. We were with uh, a good friend, uh, Russ Jacoby, who, who guides these hunts. And she saw that process from the animal being dead to it being butchered. Hmm. And, then, and then she's also eaten, you know, the, yeah. the, the meat. And that's just a really important thing for us that we are honest. So that's the first point. The second is the local point that I just want to know, how did that animal live? Like, was it, I'm somewhat critical of kind of the industrialization of animal meat and the way that some of these animals are treated, especially chickens, hogs, cows. We know some great ranchers who are really good to their animals, and we celebrate that. But we also have seen these operations where I don't think animals are always well-treated. Right, for sure. They're just, you know, they're just... uh, Huge feedlots and... Yeah, yeah, huge feedlots. And so we want to be... To have a, a knowledge of how that animal lived, how it died, was it ethically harvested? All of that, yeah. all of that stuff, and yeah. then the final point is conservation, um, and. It, Listeners may not be aware that there is a particular North American model mm-hmm. of doing conservation. And that model is actually, as I read it, really grounded in Adam Smith uh, and mm-hmm. his kind of notion of the invisible hand, where you have self interest and public interest intersecting mm-hmm. with one another. Mm-hmm. So um, the primary uh, supporters of, of wildlife conservation and management are hunters right, through their purchases of tags and, and, yeah. and whatnot. And all of that money goes to the perpetuation of wildlife and habitat. Like in Arizona, I think we have some 3,000 drinkers that the Game and Fish oversees, and all of that's funded by hunter dollars. Right. So for me, sometimes this feels like a contradiction when people say, oh, you kill animals. It's like, yeah, that, that is true. But understand that like those dollars go toward the perpetuation of wildlife habitat and the furtherance of wildlife welfare. And so yeah. there's yeah. this kind of mating of public interest and private interest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I wrote an I wrote an editorial in the Minneapolis paper a couple of weeks ago about defending hunting and mm. knowing that you know what's about to happen now with archery whitetail season right. is that there are going to be grip and grin photos in the sports section every Friday huh. of dead deer. You know, some kid shot his first deer and that's going to be, and then there's going to be letters to the editor two days later of people like how, did you know, that poor, what that deer ever do to you, right. you know, this kind of thing. <clears throat> but um, the, f- about 4% of Americans hunt.
2: Yeah, it's a very small number.
0: And about 5% of Americans are vegetarian, okay? <laughs> So n- there are 91% of Americans eat meat and don't hunt. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's so we're in the minority. And I don't know if you knew the, the, old, the late theologian Stephen Webb, but he wrote an essay in a book um, that I had the author, uh, the editor of this book on a couple episodes ago. And it's a book about Christian perspectives on hunting. Mm, I need to look it yeah, up. I'll yeah, I'll show it I to you before to. you go. I've got it inside. Uh And Stephen Webb was an animal rights activist and a vegetarian. Mm. But in his essay in this book, he says that hunters and vegetarians have more in common with with each other than they do with everyone else. Because both understand and acknowledge that eating meat involves the death of an animal. And that's why the vegetarian doesn't eat meat. And it's why the hunter, I mean, the hunter is obviously in tune with mm-hmm. the the meat that he or she serves his or her family. And I've had very similar uh, experiences here in my home with my three kids and with my wife, whom you've met, who does yeah. not hunt but and doesn't eat a ton of meat. Mm-hmm. But she happily eats wild game that I've harvested. Mm-hmm. And we eat a lot of it, mm-hmm. you know, um Especially this time of year because I have this thing, man, where I'm like, I do not want to be one of these guys who's in the back of the... Fr- oh, there's an antelope steak from 2017, you know? <laughs> like, I want to eat all the wild game. I'm like, we ate the last ducks this week mm. before duck opener on Saturday. Because oh, I'm yeah. going to start harvesting more right, ducks. more ducks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you so want it to be
2: the fresh stuff, like, within yeah, a year. Yeah, I just don't yeah. want to, like,
0: because then you start to <laughs> stockpile ducks or whatever. Yeah, now, again, yeah. I feel like there's a little, like I want to be respectful enough to the animal that right. I'm not going to wait till it's freezer burned. Right. And you're overwhelmed with duck, and so you throw it out. And, and, you know, I mean, like, when it comes to duck, I don't know about antelope, elk's easy to eat. Oh, I love elk. Elk's it's incredible, so good. right? Bison's so easy good.
2: to eat. So good.
0: Whitetail not so much. I mean, whitetail's mm. great. I think whitetail's great, but it can be prepared badly and taste mm. bad. And then you go down the list like mule deer. Yeah, it's very similar. You can, as it can to be, yeah. etc. So, I really appreciate what you're saying and agree with those things and and I'll I'll show you that book with the Stephen Webb essay in it. Um What's the reception like when you bring up the? I mean, I, I'm wondering not just about the hunting, but in fact you
2: trying to provoke conversation about firearms mm-hmm. among people of faith. You know, I've had a, the opportunity to host this in a couple congregations, uh-huh. and it's been just wildly popular. Really? I, I I think that sorry, that didn't mean to say like be boastful. I mean, it's been it's yeah. been yeah. well no, received a, is awesome. what I mean. Yeah, um, because I think people they have these conversations around the dinner tables and oftentimes there is kind of this other that, you know, like whether you're on the two A side or you're on like the anti quote unquote anti gun side, most of them are not anti gun, but, um, there is an other in the room and oftentimes you don't get to hear the stories that kind of inform that other position so i mm-hmm. took more of an ethnographic approach where it's about featuring stories and about saying hey look this is this is the reason why this person holds this particular position and this is some of the some of the religious motivations behind it yeah. and i find by featuring stories as opposed to just saying like these are the positions that people have it creates a different kind of dynamic and i think if it's hosted well You can um, invite people to kind of say, yeah, that's the story I relate with. Let's have a conversation about why. And there's just something about humanity that activates empathy when there are other people in the room. Yeah. You know, when there's like a face-to-face kind of conversation. So Yeah. Yeah, do, did you see that documentary called "Beating Guns"? Documentary film, "Beating Guns." I've read the book. Is it Shane Clayborn? Shane Clayborn. I've read, the, the, book. Okay, yeah, you've read yeah, the book. Yeah, I've read the book.
0: They did a documentary based on the book where it's Shane and you know this blacksmith guy, right? And right. they pound, uh, they pound guns into garden tools. Yep. Um, and I'm actually in that. I'm one mm-hmm. of the two pro gun. They have like kind of a right wing, red state.
2: Oh, in the documentary. Yeah, I oh, I really need to I'm see this. I'm in the this. film
0: just yeah. as like kind of a reasonable voice of a gun owner. And I make this argument, I think it's made it into the film, about like, well, if you're going to eat meat, you know, like, <laughs> this is how, you know, you're implicated yeah. in violence. I know you don't like to think it, mm-hmm. but you're implicated in violence. So, I mean, it just seems like firearms, man. It is such a... Such a touchy subject. I mean, don't you even? It's interesting you say that you'll like post publicly photos of yourself with a firearm or with a dead animal.
2: Usually with a dead animal. I try not to do not do so the much firearms. with a firearm. Yeah, no. yeah. Um. Oh, sorry. Go that, ahead.
0: Well, that just that it provokes conversation because yeah. it could also lead people like just to unfriend you. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and walk away. Yeah. Do you have it students? Could. Do you have students who get? You know, triggered by that when your your students in uh, seminary students just they're just like taking an Old Testament class Then they <laughs> see you in your Sitka camel
2: like you're wearing <laughs> a day and they, you
0: know what I'm saying they
2: you know struggle with that I I, I don't so I I my hope and I have this conversation with students at the beginning of class is that there are going to be topics that can be quote unquote triggering mm-hmm. because it's the Bible. and the bible especially the old testament is full of a lot of like it's a violent world that that text is coming from in the same way that that rap music often and hip-hop music often reflects the violence that it comes in the hebrew bible reflects the violence that it that it grows up in and so i try to tell students that look this is going to happen and the best thing we can do like if you need to take space for yourself that's that's totally fine no big deal but this is going to be there and you're going to be a pastor where people are going to be triggered by things you don't even know could be triggering. Yeah. Um, it, this world can be triggering to people. And so we have to learn how to kind of deal with that pastorally. So I try to just uh, make the invitation and say, like, if this becomes a problem for you, anything becomes a problem, let's just talk about it mm-hmm. and, and figure out uh, figure out what's going on there. So I haven't specifically had that experience, yeah, either on social media or in the classroom. And my hope is that students feel uh like the space is such that they can raise the issue if it comes mm-hmm.
0: up well before we go let me ask you as as an old testament guy i'm i'm not an old Te- i mean i i do love the old testament and feel very uncomfortable when uh christians are uh, that i mean the term that you and i will know is supersessionist when mm. they jump over the old testament to yeah. get to the good news i've often um when i'm when i was like a youth pastor i would explain it to get now this is this is an out-of-date reference for kids today <laughs> but i think hopefully most of the listeners will get it it would be like watching the shawshank redemption and only watching the last 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. you know what i'm saying like yeah, the redemption movie, yeah. of the last 30 minutes of that film yeah. are only so redemptive because of the hell yeah. Of the first 90 minutes. So not to say that the Old Testament is hell and the New Testament, but, but that whole, and as a Lutheran, you know.
2: It's like, what are these guys doing at the beach the town? World. Why does this matter? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, what's so well, great cares? about this? Big deal. Oh, who cares? <laughs> yeah. wow. Oh, this guy was raped in prison. Oh, okay, well. Right. Dang. It makes a really big difference. Right, yeah.
0: right. So Old Testament and hunting. <clears throat> Nimrod. Mm-hmm. Great hunter before the Lord. The great hunter before the Lord. <laughs> um there was some other hunting not a lot but what's your take what what is what is your study of the old testament yeah um how has that informed
2: you as a hunter that's a good question so i guess we should say more broadly that like meat consumption is a regular part of of uh, kind of Israelite society, probably not to the same degree, almost certainly not to the same well, degree Well, back as to Cain and us. Abel, man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But, oh, and and the Lord Jacob makes it pretty clear yeah, who
0: yeah. He, like, he likes meat more than wheat.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a complicated story to <laughs> so sort of understand like who, sort of yeah. Yeah. the why there. There's no why. Yeah, the, no why, why. the why I think it's, is it's, hard.
0: If anything that, that I think, that just shows we live in a completely arbitrary yeah. universe <laughs> with no moral code <laughs> because Yahweh just is like, you know what? I like that
2: one. I don't like that one. There's an element of election there. And you see yeah. that also with Jacob and Esau. Okay. You know, Jacob is sort of more of a domestic guy. Esau is a man of the field. Right. Um, and The sacrificial system also involves, you know, the consumption and, and the, of meat and the killing of animals. Yeah. Hunting in particular, I guess, thought of as a sport, you see it especially among um, kings. Mm. So the Assyrian kings, for example, we have whole... Kind of uh, wall panel reliefs where the kings will boast about their prowess, hunting lions. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, hunting uh, uh, lions are kind of the primary bears, prey, but, maybe. I'm I thought there to was think a I thought there was a bear hunting story in. I mean, they'll mention ostriches. Oh yeah. Um okay. But lions are kind of the ability to conquer a lion is sort of analogous to the ability to conquer chaos. That's oh, part of what the royal hunt is is trying to do. Okay. And uh, on the Egyptian side, you'll even see the kings kind of depicted hunting both animals and th- their enemies. Yeah. So yeah. A, a lot of that is tied up in royal ideology too. Hmm. So, but other you know that's sort of the most. That's what comes to mind immediately about hunting. David, of course, hunts, you know, both the lion and the bear. Yeah. And that's part of his resume to oh, Saul. Like, nice. hey, let me go take on Goliath because I'm the shepherd who can deal with <laughs> these other the predators. Yeah. yeah. So there yeah. is some, There's stuff, some
0: precursor there. Yeah. in there. That's cool. That's very cool.
2: Well, uh, my neighbor
0: has started to mow his lawn, <laughs> which is probably... I taught him how to mow. He They're first-time homeowners. And... Um, they're actually Tibetan Buddhists from India. Really? It's fascinating. So I've, um, he makes potstickers
2: yeah. for Amazing. me,
0: and they're incredible. They're yeah. incredible. But I've asked if he wants some venison, and he got a little. He's like, <laughs> ah, I make them with beef. I'm like, well, what if I gave you some ground venison? He said, yeah. I would make potstickers with venison for you. For you. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I don't know if I would. So I'm slowly trying to um, – break him in but he does know how to mow his lawn now <laughs> and he's mowing so that's probably a good time. A good neighbor. I, I thank you so much for driving down here and um, wish you the best this hunting season and I'd love to stay in conversation with you. I, Please,
2: think, yeah.
0: I think we'd have a lot to talk about. Maybe go on an
2: antelope hunt someday. Hey that'd be fun I and once, once sort of COVID's passed we should have a barbecue. Oh yeah like an end of season barbecue. Let's or do it. Hunting Let's, season do it. Barbecue. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Alright thanks thank a lot. You. Yeah. Did you remember to hit record?
0: <laughs> wow, Brandon, that was a great interview. Thanks. You did such a nice job recording and, and engineering and producing it.
1: Well, thanks, Tony. I thought it was a great episode as well, and you did such a great job of hosting it. Oh, thank you. What if some people out there listening thought the same thing as us and just wanted to throw their sponsorship towards the show? How would they be able to do that, Tony?
0: Oh, we would love more sponsors at the Reverend Hunter podcast. If people want to do that, they can get a hold of Karen Cleary at the Talk North Podcast Network, and her email is kcleary, that's K-C-L-E-A-R-Y at talknorth.com, and she will tell you everything you need to know about sponsoring the Reverend Hunter podcast. We would love to have you as a partner on this show. Thanks a lot. Great
1: question, Brandon. Brandon. Thanks for throwing it out there for me like it was completely unplanned. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.